Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to the Sibylline Podcast series. Today we'll be talking about Lebanon and its continuing political, economic and financial crisis. My name is Alex Parsons. I'm the lead analyst for the Americas desk, but with me are the real experts on this subject, the lead analyst for Middle East and Africa, Phil Riding, and our analyst for the Middle East, Eloise Scott. Welcome. Uh, Let's get right to it. For those who spend any time looking at the Middle East, it is a a subject of never-ending interest. And we wonder to ourselves, how and why is Lebanon still without a government? What is the political situation now and why has it got so bad? Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I think it it certainly is an interesting country to follow. Certainly there are are longer term, more deep rooted dynamics at play here. But certainly at the moment, as you rightly pointed out, Lebanon has been without a government, uh, without a formal government since around August 2020. But obviously we know that, that even the months before that were pretty chaotic, given the outbreak of unrest in October 2019. So really, the country has been without any kind of functioning government for for nearly two years or for the best part of two years. And essentially, Hassan Diab and his government, after his resignation in August last year, has remained in a caretaker capacity. And I think what's what's really important with the current situation in Lebanon and the reason why there is, is no formal government still is that elected officials and their sectarian parties and the political blocs it seems like they have no real interest in reaching a political solution. So obviously, Diab and his his government are essentially trapped in the situation that they're in. Other parties, it seems like they're they're slightly trying to distance themselves, given that the caretaker government may be forced to take some quite controversial decisions in in the coming couple of weeks, particularly with regards to things like subsidies. So it does seem like there's no real appetite among these political parties and and sectarian blocs to form a government as they would potentially then be held responsible for the the country's failings. And efforts, instead of being poured into uh, sort of reaching a political agreement, therefore seem to be much more focused on protecting patronage networks, which obviously form part of of the sort of the longer term issues um, with, with Lebanon that appears like it's quickly becoming a a failed state relatively rapidly. And in essence, in the last few months, we've seen that that as these these economic needs have deepened with the currency crisis and obviously ordinary citizens falling under the poverty line, these have translated into opportunities for sectarian blocs and even militias to provide to their supporters, obviously in return for their loyalty. So we've seen that Hezbollah, obviously backed by Iran, have launched a chain of, of supermarkets. They're providing ration cards for food. So certainly these, these blocks and these parties that are integral to, to the Lebanese state are rather protecting their longer term influence in the country, despite the fact that obviously the, the, the sort of the wider state is collapsing around it. And Hezbollah is an interesting one in particular, just because it, it has a greater reach and it has networks, really entrenched networks across the country, but also obviously through Syria and Iran. And it also has quite quite a lot of control over certain industries and sectors such as healthcare. So obviously in the aftermath, well, very much in the middle of a pandemic, control over medical supplies and the fact that it's it's going to be 
very much focused on its own supporters, I think could create quite a lot of concern and and sectarian divisions that are, are already very much present. So this erosion of state services and and groups like Hezbollah almost preparing for the state's demise obviously don't bode well. And I think that is why we've seen no real impetus and no real effort for these parties, particular Hezbollah and and its allies, to form a government. And and I think what is is really particularly worrying is obviously it it kind of harks back to the civil war of 15 years of, of the population being reliant on political factions and militias for the most basic provisions. We are seeing groups like Hezbollah essentially providing for their own supporters. I think worryingly that the political situation as it is could lead to not just widespread unrest like we, we've seen in the last year or so, but, but real sectarian divides and conflict. Thanks, Eloise. That's, that's fascinating because, you know, my memory of, of Lebanon is very much of a country that was powerless really to define its own destiny, influenced as it was by so many external parties, whether it's Syria or Iran or France or Israel even. I, I wonder though, listening to you, whether although those elements are still there and the factions that are remain, how much this is now a product of Lebanon's own making? And is there anything that external parties can do to help or make things worse? But yeah, my sense is just this time around, unlike the civil war, this is not a thing by proxy anymore. This is just the Lebanese political class completely failing to, you know, deliver on its responsibility. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is obviously a huge part of it. But I do think, unfortunately, in the case of Hezbollah, the, 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 the sort of lack of political will really does come into it. And the reason that Hezbollah has obviously become such a dominant state actor is because of these networks that it has. And and like I mentioned earlier, these supermarkets that the group has opened for its supporters, they're offering discounted prices for for basic goods that are coming through Syria from Iran and, and, and from Syria itself. So in many respects, I think while we're in this situation, while Lebanon has reached this, this sort of dire point because of sectarian conflict, I think almost groups like Hezbollah are preparing for potentially what comes next, using and leveraging its support from proxies like Iran. And it's interesting that obviously the Gulf states have previously been quite generous when it comes to Lebanon, but there there doesn't seem the same appetite from the likes of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. So it's very much a product of the the ruling elite. Um, But I think unfortunately it is rooted in these sectarian divides. And I think that's why it's so hard at the moment. You've got quite a, a lot of the the sort of younger Lebanese sections of society that are talking about elections and and there's a real sort of motivation for civil society to mobilise, but I I don't see how that that is able to come to fruition, particularly with the dynamics going on at the moment and how Hezbollah is essentially positioning itself to to really become an even more dominant actor in in state provision. Yeah, I think the the sort of post-Civil War settlement that's held for the last 20 plus years that obviously depended on a series of of sectarian interest groups ultimately appreciating that compromise through a kind of confessional political system offered greater collective benefits than you know a a continued preference to uphold you know individual um, sectarian interests whether that be you know Hezbollah is looking after the the Shia or uh, indeed whether it be you know, the, the various uh, leaders of Sunni and Christian factions. Whereas now I think Lebanon's financial collapse is, is ushered in a situation that Eloise um, rightly described as effectively um, 
meaning that the perceived uh, gains from political compromise between these groups that you know the calculus has changed so that that there's very little to be gained from compromising internally and forming a new government and embracing the need for painful reforms and and actually the longer each of these sectarian political factions remains out of power the the more that they can simply preserve the interests of their own um, respective groups and hope that in the aftermath of, of whatever crisis comes or indeed the, the crises that are already here that they'll be in a position to, to rebuild you know some support base or at least safeguard what they have rather than risk losing it in the course of, of making the kind of compromises that have been routine over the course of the last 20 years and, and that have ultimately allowed the Lebanese state to function in that time. You mentioned the financial crisis there as, as did Eloise um, and there's been an ongoing scandal a corruption scandal involving the central bank and its governor we learned very recently the eye-watering scale of that corruption the governor and his brother as he appear alleged to have siphoned off more than 300 million dollars from the central bank which seems utterly incredible is this the sort of thing that Lebanese citizens just rolls their, roll their eyes at now or will this have any real cut through into the, the domestic political and civil situation I think it'll just reinforce the sentiments that that have been evident in Lebanon, certainly since the protests began in 2019, which is that, you know, the old guard must go and that this is simply the latest indication of just how deep the rot is within Lebanon's various institutions, bearing in mind that that Riyadh Salami and and the central bank have been at, at kind of the heart of Lebanon's dysfunctional political settlement over the course of the last 20 years because they've created this a sort of as, as is often described a sort of ponzi scheme where by keeping interest rates high they've enticed the lebanese banking sector to effectively hand over 70 percent of their, their assets to the lebanese state whilst also incentivizing large a large degree of, of remunerations from the lebanese diaspora overseas so um, all, all that's happened in that time is that it's made the Lebanese financial sector entirely dependent on the liquidity of the state, which is now bankrupt. So the entire system is about to collapse. And, and Riyadh Salami was, you know, for a long time given credit for overseeing this seemingly peculiar system that worked. But obviously, its weaknesses have now been ruthlessly exposed, as have his own, you know, wrongdoings in the in the sense of of his, you know, embezzlement of, of as you say, three hundred million dollars. So no, I don't think that that. His own poor behaviour will, will come as a surprise to many Lebanese. I think that all it will do is ensure that the demands for wholesale political change, obviously, uh, will retain will retain salience in, in the course of the coming months. But as Eloise pointed out before, while uh, there are many young Lebanese people who who wish to see wholesale change, they're currently being confronted by much more pressing issues like, you know, their currency losing 90% of its value and food prices going through the roof and, and so on. And so they have much more immediate concerns to deal with rather than embarking on a, a kind of political reform process that would see, you know, a truly independent central bank um, that was less kleptocratic than it has been for the last 30 years. So, um, yeah, those, those, the kind of changes that the, the salami scandal suggests are necessary are unfortunately still some way off, it seems. Blimey, that is um, just rather depressing, really. Now, it seems, therefore, that in the short term, there's very little chance of anything getting much better. But as as we do look forward and we look think in terms of you know, how businesses operate in Lebanon and how uh, the country moves itself forward, perhaps as vaccines start to become effective and people travel more, uh, you know, what are the prospects for Lebanon? Does it have any, is there any 
light at the end of the tunnel, as it were, uh, for for the country, for the the economy, and for you know businesses who are trying to operate. Fortunately, as I've I've sort of alluded to, I think it, it does seem like in the next few weeks, or at least the next couple of months, that that there are some quite major deadlines. I mean, even the central bank governor himself um, and numerous officials have come out and said that pretty much by the end of the month, they're not going to be able to continue to fund subsidies. So there are some real major potential points for, for significant unrest, some major flashpoints potentially um, quite in, in the quite near future. I think, again, as I alluded to, the fact that there, there is no real political appetite and there seems to be more of an acceptance on the part of major blocs that this is where the country is heading, that, that it is a pretty bleak picture. And I think even if the caretaker government or even a formal government were to be able to get access to limited funding it's essentially just kicking the can further down the road and phil was was right to suggest that obviously the there's a huge disillusionment um the political process isn't necessarily going to change certainly isn't going to change anytime soon even if again if the western governments that, that have invested quite a lot of time and efforts uh, particularly france recently um pushing for a roadmap for reform, even in providing humanitarian assistance, it just doesn't go far enough to address these these real deep deep rooted concerns that affect all, every aspect of the state essentially. Uh, and and I think worryingly that the sort of civil war context is is coming back to to really haunt the country, and particularly with with the rising dominance of Hezbollah and, and the way it's positioning itself within the state. I think it could become a potentially quite a hostile environment, certainly if there is a, a return to real sectarian conflict. With the outbreak of unrest in late 2019, it was relatively united. There were, there were occasional spats between Hezbollah supporters and Amal supporters and, and Sunnis, particularly in areas like Tripoli, where that's those tensions run particularly high anyway. So obviously there, there were sectarian undertones, but I think... The, the way that groups like Hezbollah, Hezbollah obviously being the biggest group that is able to do this, Hezbollah providing essentially for its own supporters, that really risks creating and inflaming that sectarian environment again. So unfortunately, certainly in the next few months, I, I think, as I said, there are some quite big flashpoints that could make it quite a hostile operating environment. Thanks, Eloise. Have you got any final thoughts, Phil? Uh, no, just to, to reiterate what Eloise has said, really, which is that it, it would be nice to, uh, to to sit here and, and as the rest of the, the world is, uh, or at least in um, the West, at least is perhaps starting to look beyond COVID and the, the various pressures that that has brought that, that really the crisis in Lebanon is, is here to stay and you know, pending some miraculous political breakthrough that uh, for which there's n- there's no real sign as of yet. Yeah, we can't really expect the situation to improve. So um, I think it's just something that we're watching closely to see, you know, as and when these flashpoints appear, pinning them down precisely and, and looking at the, the implications at a tactical level for business. Indeed. Now, well, thank you both. I mean, I take from that not only that we continue to feel great sympathy and sadness for the country as a whole, but that actually there are some very worrying signs for the for the next three to six months in terms of flashpoints and the potential for escalation. So thank you very much for shedding such light on a, a fascinating subject. Thank you. Thank you very much. With me now is Amy Reynolds, our Deputy Insight Manager, who's going to give us a, a look at what the team has been focusing on in terms of the week ahead. What have you got, Amy? Hi, thank you, Alex. Yeah, so we have a few different areas on our radar at the moment, all of which are around May Day on the 1st of May. So firstly, across the UK, 
Kill the Bill demonstrations will be taking place on Saturday. These demonstrations are in opposition to a bill that will bring in wide ranging new police powers when it comes to managing protests. So yeah, quite a sensitive area um, and turnout is likely to be pretty substantial and some scuffles with police are very likely. The last protest resulted in about 100 arrests in London. Um, so it's very possible that we'll see something similar on this occasion as well. And then also on the 1st of May um, in South Africa, it's Labor Day in the country. Um, and as such, unions may hold demonstrations, particularly at the moment, given the ongoing political wrangling over the restructuring of state-owned enterprises and potential related redundancies. So yeah, we may see some disruption around that in cities and towns across the country. And then jumping across to the Asia Pacific region, May Day events from rallies have been canceled in some countries, such as India, for example, due to the ongoing pandemic. In Indonesia, however, the Indonesian Trade Union Confederation have organized mass rallies for the 1st of May um, in Jakarta and in other urban centers to protest controversial laws that are perceived to erode workers' rights. Gatherings are likely to take place outside of government buildings, including the constitutional court in the capital, and heightened security and traffic disruption are expected um, near to the protest sites. And then lastly, there will also be a five-day national holiday from the 1st to the 5th of May in China, which will be the first major public holiday without any domestic travel restrictions, except for some very localized ones um, in Yunnan province in the southwest, since the onset of the pandemic, so well over a year now. Booking data projects a significant surge in leisure travel, as one might well expect, which could lead to congestion on major highways around the country and around tourist spots. Thank you very much, Amy. If you have any questions or would like to know more, please get in touch at our email address, which is info at sibylline.co.uk. 